Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. They're calling it Happy Monday apparently, but let's face it, you're not very happy, are you? You're fed up with being told what to do, where to do it, when to do it, who to do it with, and why you can't do a load of other stuff with anyone. And you certainly shouldn't do anything that might kill anyone, like hugging. It's more like Manic Monday, isn't it, rather than Happy Monday. This morning we're still two weeks away from being able to enjoy a meal outside a restaurant or indeed a drink outside a pub. And yet we're being told we should be feeling grateful for our newfound freedoms which allow two households to meet outside without touching each other or you and five friends having a picnic as long as you're not sitting too close to each other on a blanket. I'm sorry, I can't take any of this seriously. I can't take it anymore. I'm telling you, it's ridiculous. Uh, Thanks, but no thanks. This morning we're kicking off with John Whittingdale, the Minister for Media and Data, on the power wielded by big tech companies like Facebook and YouTube and government attempts to curb their enthusiasm for banning things and issuing warnings about articles and videos posted by entirely legitimate and regulated journalism, right? It's a story particularly close to our hearts here at Talk Radio, and hopefully the online safety bill will make things better. 03444991000. Coming up later on, Peter Hitchens joins us from the Mail on Sunday to talk about the latest lockdown situation, the scourge of e-scooters, uh, and the problem with China. And we'll bring the latest from Scotland, where Alex Salmon has set the cat amongst the pigeons with his new Alba party. As ever, of course, we want to hear from you. You're just a few days away from Easter. Are you really going to meet up in the garden for the Sunday roast? Is it going to be freezing at the week Are you going to be buying a big coat? Well, good luck with that because you can't get into a shop that sells any. Oh, no. 0344 499 1000. We're taking you on a tour of the travel business as well. And we'll be hearing from Dr. David Bull with a bold plan for fixing the cladding scandal once and for all. It's all happening here. Uh, It's Monday. It is the home of common sense. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. And a very warm welcome to what is apparently going to be a very warm week. It's going to be 20 to 21 degrees here in London today and tomorrow, very possibly. Um, But you can go to a park. You can go uh, and sit in somebody's garden. But what if you don't have a garden? What if you don't have a park? 
What if you can't go anywhere nice? You just have to sit at home uh, and look at another series of something or other on Netflix. That's all we can tell you. First of all, though, uh, let's talk about something completely different, because just for a change, we thought we're not going to talk about the lockdown. We're not going to talk about COVID. We're not going to talk about the problem with uh, the vaccine rollout in the European Union. No, we're going to talk about big tech. We're going to talk about YouTube, Google. We're going to talk about, uh, of course, Facebook, because we've all had situations. Many of you uh, report them to me uh, where things have been taken down. We had a case the other day uh, of somebody posting a picture of Winston Churchill on Facebook uh, and having it taken down on the grounds that it was somehow giving out the wrong message, which is all very strange. John Whittingdale, Conservative MP uh, for Malden, a Ministry of State for Media and Data, is here because there is a bill currently being put together, the online safety bill, which we're hopeful is going to make a difference. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Tell us a little bit, first of all, about your plans, because obviously we suffered um, rather at the hands of YouTube earlier this year uh, when they decided sort of unilaterally to, to, to take our channel away without really explaining why. We still don't really know why they did it, but at least they've reinstated it. So hopefully your bill will, will, will go some way towards helping that not to happen again. Well, I hope it will. Um, the online harms bill is mainly aimed at trying to protect vulnerable and young people by removing damaging content, material like child sex abuse, like grooming, like extremism, propaganda. And that's the kind of material which we don't want on the internet circulating and we want taken down. But at the same time, the pill is going to strengthen the protection of material which shouldn't be taken down. We believe very strongly in freedom of expression in this country um, and where there is differences of opinion, it's right that those should be aired. And so the bill will, first of all, protect reputable journalistic content, that which is provided by legitimate news organisations and talk radio would certainly fall into that. Um, in fact, it's easy for broadcast um, journalists because they're already regulated by Ofcom. Right. So we say there's no reason for an additional regulator. But beyond that, we will also have a general duty to observe freedom of expression, which will apply to the platforms with Ofcom making sure that that is built into their terms and conditions. And when it comes to what you might call um, I don't want to call them unreputable uh, organisations, but say, for example, an individual YouTuber, somebody who uh, might call himself or herself a citizen journalist. These are the kinds of people who are also coming up against censorship, if you like. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because you can't really always draw a line and say, well, anything over that line is, is bad and anything on this side is OK. Well, we're going to have a general duty to, um, to respect freedom of expression. So anybody who feels that their content has been taken down by one of the big tech platforms for no good reason will have the right to appeal um, and have that looked at to see whether or not it is, in fact, a breach of the terms and conditions. And Ofcom will be there to make sure that that's properly done. But journalistic content does get a special protection. That's going to be exempted from the provisions of the bill completely. And you're right that one of the questions will be exactly how do you define journalistic content, reputable, you know, but if, if it's for Times, Daily Telegraph, Indeed Talk Radio, then there's no argument. I mean, clearly that they are established, um, respected journalistic outlets, but there will be a grey area. And so we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to draw up criteria 
under which we will judge whether or not a journalistic organisation meets those tests and therefore is exempt. Yes, because one of the things that we found, interestingly enough, was that, you know, there were kind of certain rules and regulations which were being applied, but were not being explained so that we didn't really know where these community guidelines exactly were, precisely what they what they protected, what they didn't protect. And there was definitely a sense um, a few months back, not so much now, um, that certain individuals who we were perhaps interviewing or other people who were writing about them um, were kind of almost blacklisted by some of the tech uh, companies like Facebook and like YouTube. Um, so much so that if you did an interview with them, and Peter Hitchens has fallen prey to this before, uh, if you did an interview with Peter Hitchens and he was talking about, say, for example, the mask study in Denmark, suddenly it would disappear off of YouTube. You couldn't find it. Yes. Well, I have to say it is it is in part, at least, the experience of talk radio that has led us to strengthen these provisions of the bill, mm. because we were very concerned when we saw what had happened yeah. um, you know, by YouTube. And as you say, the terms and conditions aren't properly uh, transparent and there didn't appear to be any proper appeal process. Now, both of those things will be addressed by the bill. Um, every of the one of the big platforms will be required to have very clear terms and conditions, making clear what they allow, what they don't, and with re respect to freedom of expression. And then if they don't apply those properly, Ofcom will be able to adjudicate. Um, and so once uh, we saw the experience that you had had on talk radio, I mean, both I and Oliver Dowd, the Secretary of State, got on to Google as the parent company of YouTube to say, you know, please explain what has happened here because talk radio is a regulated broadcaster and the regulator Ofcom had said there wasn't a problem. Yes, and that was why it was so perverse in a way. And as I say, they still haven't actually explained precisely what it was that was the problem. Um, so hopefully we, we avoid that situation again. But how agile will you have to be, John, in terms of if somebody does appeal to you or to a government organisation because they've been banned in some way, how quickly can that be done? How, you know, how, how, how easy will that be to do? Well, we will want it to be done very quickly and it will become particularly relevant, let us say, in the course of a general election campaign or a referendum campaign. So we would expect it to be done quickly. Um, we'll obviously be debating precisely the detail of the bill. It hasn't yet been introduced into Parliament. It's probably going to be examined in what we call pre-legislative scrutiny before it actually goes through the various stages of parliamentary approval. So there will be plenty of time to discuss the detail of how it works. But absolutely, you know, one of the things I don't want to see is for a complaint to be made that something has been removed uh, unjustly. And then six months later for them to say, oh, yes, actually, we agree with you, we shouldn't have taken it down, by mm. which time, obviously, it's too late. Well, exactly right. And I know in individual organisations uh, and, and individual uh, people have had their, their content demonetized as well on YouTube, which which is as bad as banning it. You know, it's still there, but effectively the kind of algorithms don't work in your favour. And if you were making some money from it, you're now not making money. Yes. I mean, the, it applies in, in a wide variety of cases. I mean, for a lot of people, they're not there to make money. They just want to sound off about mm. something. Um, but some for some people, it does represent quite an important part of their income, particularly newspapers and journalists. Mm. And newspapers who survived in part, at least on advertising, have found that a large proportion of their advertising isn't going to the revenue isn't going to them. It's going to these big platforms. Mm. So we actually have a separate initiative uh, which will lead to legislation to create a new competition regulator to make sure that the powerful platforms are not abusing their position.
and that too will be introduced very soon it's being the the unit is being created next month yes i mean because um, one 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 thing which which i actually found quite amusing more than annoying uh, was an interview i did with peter hitchens sometime back end of last year uh, posted it on facebook and some as i regarded it dweeb in sort of northern california had written a warning on it to say that you know some of this content may be misleading and i was like excuse me i don't know who you are but the combination of myself and peter hitchens journalistic integrity and, and years of experience is practically a hundred you know so i'm not quite sure why you've decided that something we said needs a warning on it well i mean we do expect um facebook and the other platforms to address the issues around disinformation in particular we've obviously been, been very concerned about some of the material circulating about the vaccine program for instance saying that it's sort of injecting little robots into your body or whatever and these these are things which are very harmful because it may lead people not to want to take the vaccine but where we are very clear is legitimate expression of opinion. And I mean, both you and Peter Hitchens are very respected voices with strong views. And you should be, it's right that you should be able to express those views. And indeed, that people can come back and disagree with you. Yes, exactly right. And that's precisely the kind of culture that we want to have in this country. We don't want to have a culture where everybody has to agree. And I have to say, and I'm not expecting you to back me up on this, that there are certain members of the government uh, who seem to think that anyone who dissents from their uh, view and the science uh, is somehow, you know, in the, in, in the work of the devil. Well, I mean, I think it's important there should be a, a proper debate, because actually, if you try and suppress debate, people then decide that it's even more evidence of some sort of conspiracy. Mm. And, you know, we do very strongly believe in the freedom of expression. We believe in a free press in the UK. And that's something which, you know, I and Olive Dyden in the department and indeed the prime minister are all absolutely committed to. Indeed. And it is a very different sort of um, landscape now, even from the one that you and I started our careers in, I guess you would say. I mean, in terms of looking at the, uh, the, the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, you've got so many different outlets now. Instagram, you know, you've got Snapchat, you've got things starting up all over the place. You've got this new thing called Clubhouse. I mean, it's quite a massive area that you've now got to kind of um, get a hold of, isn't it? It is. And, and the truth is, well, the 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 legislation which put in place cyber controls was the Communications Act, which was now you know, 15 years uh, old or more. And at that time, none of these things really existed. So you're absolutely right. And, and the online harms bill is an attempt to address cyber problems that have been created by these very big social media companies or search companies. Uh, but at the same time, we're very keen to make sure that there is still proper freedom of expression and that, and that it isn't used to censor people. Yes. Well, I remember, I'm afraid, back into the, the 90s when I was assistant editor of Daily Express and I was charged with bringing in Apple Macs into the building and getting everybody sort of, you know, commensurate with use, usage of such machines. And we actually had a meeting to discuss whether we should grant email access to individual journalists because we thought they might misuse it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, we, the pace at which life has changed as a result of, of new technology is extraordinary. But actually, if you think, you know, if, if the pandemic had occurred, what, five or six years ago, when we didn't have a lot of the technology that we now use, mm. like Zoom, which you and I are talking on this morning. Yeah. I mean, actually, the pandemic would have been far harder, indeed, probably impossible to get through because we wouldn't have had remote education. We wouldn't have had remote shopping. We wouldn't have the entertainment that is streamed. And all of those things have transformed our lives. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, Talk Radio has become a television channel uh, in the past yep. year. You know, a year ago, um, we weren't really even out there on YouTube. We're now doing 120 million plus <clears throat> views, you know, every single year. So so it's really been quite remarkable. Let me ask you, John, just about a couple of other things before we, before we finish up. Obviously, today, a day when people are feeling supposedly quite happy because it's happy monday there's some some sign that uh, that things are starting to shift a little bit what, what's your view on how quickly we should be doing this uh, lockdown and how and how to get out of it well i mean i think you know i i heard your introduction and i understand why you're perhaps not quite as happy as you would like to be but, <laughs> i'm just you know, generally grumpy <laughs> it is a step in the right direction. And obviously, we've got to take it gradually because you only have to look across at Europe to see what is happening there, where there is a third wave and they're having to go back into even tighter lockdown restrictions. We have had great success. The vaccine program has been terrific, but we do need to be careful. Well, now, the experts tell us there are still these new variants around. And so it's a gradual process but what we are absolutely determined is that it should be in one direction only that mm. it should be a steady lifting and that we mustn't go too fast and put at risk the progress we've made so yes today is a small step but it's only a couple of weeks before we're going to be able hopefully to take another step and that will allow people to start going into shops again um, which they haven't been able to do for several months mm. so i mean it is you know today is an important step forward Yes, I think so. Well, in two weeks' time, uh, we'll be able to go and sit outside a pub and, and have a pint. And it may well be that uh, we're going to do a show from a pub that day. So you might want to come down and uh, and share in our joy on that particular Well, occasion. I can tell you that the pubs in Malden are all getting ready for it. And I shall certainly be in the pub garden in a couple of weeks. Well, I, I must say, I did see an encouraging story at the weekend. 41,000 um, different uh, hospitality outlets, apparently, in this country are preparing to open on April the 12th. So so that is good news. And, and because I think people have been starved and the economy's been starved for an awfully long time, John, uh, of, of decent sort of input and, and tax revenue raising powers. It has. And actually, it, it is said that, you know, people have actually accumulated quite a lot of savings because they haven't been able to go out and spend money in the way they normally do. Mm. So hopefully, as we do manage to relax these restrictions, people will take advantage of it and go out and enjoy themselves. Absolutely. And certainly April the 12th, I should be out there. Good man. And fi finally, John, what's the passage time of this of this bill, the, um, uh, the online safety bill? When are we expecting to see something like that emerging uh, for, for, for a debate? Well, it is going to be introduced into Parliament in the next session. Um, and as I say, there will probably be some pre-legislative examination of it first. We do need to get it right. This is a very complicated area. We're one of the very first countries in the world to be trying to impose controls on this damaging content we want to uh, remove. Uh, and so we are talking to all the various uh, bodies that are interested. But nevertheless, it is a big problem and we need to address it quickly. So I hope that by the end of this year, you know, it will be pretty much completing its passage through Parliament and becoming law. Excellent stuff. John, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. We'll see you soon. John Whittingdale, Conservative MP for Malden, Minister of State for Media and Data. Uh, are you feeling uh, in any way somehow... Uh, optimistic, shall we say, uh, if you're not particularly happy. I mean, I'm not particularly unhappy, but I do say uh, because this particular day falls on the same day as my mother's 97th birthday and I should be in Connecticut with her, I should be in America uh, giving her a hug uh, because she's getting on a bit now. Uh, she probably is going to see 100. I mean, I don't expect anything else to happen. However, 
The point is, is that it's a little bit difficult for me to get too over enthusiastic about the idea that the government has somehow granted us the ability to go into a park with five other people uh, or meet up with another family in the garden without hugging each other. And I do wonder about the sanity of people uh, who are still asking for permission to behave like that, because I'm pretty sure that most people listening to this show are not asking for permission. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. Time to say very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. Uh, I'm sorry to say I don't have the team of scaffolders who were assisting <laughs> me with uh, broadcast last week. That was uh, quite, uh, that was quite magnificent. Although we have, although we have lost your sound for a moment there, um, I lost you too. I okay, think. well, so that 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 that'll, that'll teach us to make a joke about the scaffolders. It will, won't it? Yeah. I mean, you're not allowed to laugh anymore, you know, because I see this headline in the Times this morning, and I thought of you immediately. Embrace your new freedoms, but don't hug. I mean, for God's sake. Yes. Well, I've never been much of a hugger anyway. I have to confess, so I, I, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be worrying me so much. But what's uh, happened in, in all this is that the, the proper relationship between state and individual has been reversed. We now look to the state to give us permission to hug people, for goodness' sake, permission to meet people. Uh, it's, it, and we're supposed to be grateful when we're allowed to do these things at all. Mm. Uh, that's the effects of this revolution that this country has been through in the past year. We've all completely changed our relationship with the state. We've accepted a, a, a total loss of basic freedom and have, be, have, have become serfs of a much, much more powerful government than we had before. And that is the ultimate change, which will affect everything which happens to us for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, that, that has happened, whether there's an illness abroad or not. Uh, we, we've now we've now become servile in a way that we never were before. Yeah. And it's our own fault, in my view, for accepting it so readily. Yes, I think you're probably right. And I mean, you know, you've done your level best to try and convince everybody of it for, for more than a year now. Um, and, and even you at times have been frustrated by the public's kind of lack of, of interest in a way. And I find it extraordinary, really, that we are uh, where we are, because, as you've said, um, the government don't give these things up very easily. And it now seems that they're finding more and more reasons why we can't open the economy, whether it's a new variant, whether it's what's going on in Europe, whether the vaccine rollout hasn't gone as well as, as it should have done. You know, they keep finding another excuse for not letting us do anything. Well, as I say, the default position remains that we are restricted uh, unless we are given permission to be unrestricted. Mm. And that means that it, 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 this is, is constantly on people's minds. If some group in, with, with a loud voice in government is able to insist that there is still a danger, then all the, rather, they're not promises, all the, the suggestions that have been made that we might be slightly less unfree in months to come uh, can be either cancelled or reversed at, at no notice at all. And it's, it's, as I keep saying, it's astonishing to me uh, that I'm now less free to leave this country than an East German pensioner was to leave that communist prison house. Mm. And we, we've, we, again, we've accepted this. And this is, I mean, obviously, individual people living their lives on their own in their homes and families and at work have less responsibility for this because how much power do they have? The people who I'm angry with and my, my fellow members of the chattering classes, civil society, people with positions of influence, who didn't use them uh, to oppose this at the time. If they had done so, people would have, uh, would have been more inclined to stand up against it. But they didn't. So, so here we are. And I, it, it just astonishes me that people who now write in the papers about freedom and not being woke and all the rest mm. and how terribly bold they are about freedom of speech at a time when human freedom was under direct attack by the government, 
They sat around in their back gardens, drinking chilled shabby from mystic glasses and did nothing whatsoever at all to defend liberty. I remember, it must be almost exactly a year ago, the occasion when I, I, when I discovered that Lord Sumption was pretty much on the same side as me. Mm. I'd been on the point of giving up because it had been so hopeless to get, to get anybody at all uh, to join me in this. And then suddenly there was this fantastic voice of weight, substance and majesty speaking out on my side. And that kept me going. But if it hadn't been for that, I think I might have chucked the whole thing <laughs> in then because it was so clearly uh, the, the, the enormous majority had accepted the argument. And, and, and even, so and, even and despite his, his kind of distinguished background and, and, and career and mind, legal mind, uh, he was more or less dismissed as a crank, wasn't he? Well, ultimately, this is the thing. I, either he was going to turn political opinion uh, completely, which I hope for a moment he might do, or he would himself become the victim of the sort of attacks which have been made, particularly, I have to say, on scientists uh, who've stood out against this and yeah. who've been warned and marginalised and told to shut up until they're rocking the boat, and who, of course, are in, a, in a, an area of life which is nothing like as ethical and kindly and thoughtful and logical as you'd hope it would be. Science is full of careerism and money and all kinds mm. of other things, which, which means that it, and, and of course, depends very heavily on government. So it's, it's just as bad. It's not the kingdom of the mind that you want it to be. It's just as bad as, as, as if, you, if you like, newspapers or the media. Uh, in fact, possibly worse, because it's really shocking to hear, as I do, and obviously privately, because people don't want to go public about this, about the pressure that is placed on scientists if they speak out. Mm. So what happens, either uh, you, you win in these battles, uh, or you are derided as a, as a, as a lunatic, eccentric nutcase mm. and gradually push the margins of life and shut up. And they, that's, that's what happens. And have you found anything changing, say, for example, in the last month since the, the figures have dropped so dramatically, since the numbers of people getting vaccinated have, have increased? Have you noticed any kind of lessening uh, of the attacks on you, perhaps on social media? Well, the attacks on me have come from the other direction, from people who... who, who <laughs> you can't who, win, who, can you? I, no, I can't. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how very similar the attacks are, personalised, abusive, stupid, unreasoning, uh, from the people who uh, who, who said I, I, I shouldn't have taken the vaccination, whatever explanation I offer, or even unbothered un by the fact that I was the one who went public about this, uh, rather than being discovered doing it, which mm. I could easily have done it in private. And no, that, that's been the, my main experience recently, is, is, is being attacked by what I, I suppose I could call my own side, which must greatly delight Mike Hancock to mm. see the, to, to see the anti-lockdown movement tearing itself apart with silly disputes about nothing, which mm. is what, no, what I have noticed, and I think it's perfectly reasonable, is that many people have placed faith in the, in the vaccine. As a, as a point of liberation after this has been, has become widespread, what will be the justification for all these measures? Mm. I think those people are gradually learning that it doesn't really matter whether they're vaccinated or not, or whether we top 30 million or whatever it is. The government is still very reluctant to give way and to, and to hand back the, the powers over us that it took. Well, that's um, right. And I mean, there's, I... A, there's a lesson for you. If you, if you believe that that was guaranteed, I remember in our debate, the, the, the debate which, which you organized with Dan Hodges, was a key part of his change of position that the vaccine was going to alter things. Yeah. I wonder whether if you asked him now, he would feel quite the same way. Well, interestingly, some of his uh, tweets and some of the things he's written about within recent weeks have been going back the other way, saying, well, surely we should be lifting these restrictions quicker. 
um, which of course that's exactly what I think. I'm sure that's what you think. Um, yeah. He seems to now have gone moved back more back towards your position, uh, having already moved away from it once. So God knows what he's thinking today. But... Well, good for him. I mean, anybody who changes their mind because the facts change seems to me to be uh, to be worth talking to, and and, and good for him. Perhaps if we had our discussion, that would be a better debate mm. than we had last mm. time. But, mm. uh, it, very, it very possibly so. Since we last spoke, Peter, I watched uh, with some alarm Boris Johnson's press briefing last Monday afternoon, and I concluded that this is not a prime minister who is ever going to move away from the sort of yoke of these rather gloomy, sage scientists. You know, he doesn't look like a man who has got either the purpose or the power or the, or the desire um, to, to, to not listen to them, to say to them, look, I'm br- grateful for your advice. I'm grateful for the warnings. I'm grateful for the modelling. But on this occasion, I'm going to go my own way. I don't think he's ever going to do that. Well, it doesn't look like it. It does seem as well from various briefings that emerged a couple of weeks ago that he has now accepted the official dogma that we didn't lock down soon enough and that he was still a treat to start with and that he's, he's, he's to blame for that. Mm. And that, of course, gives his his pro-lockdown advisors immense power over him. Every time he says, well, do not think perhaps we should uh, we should open our business. Oh, but Prime Minister, that's the mistake you made a year ago. Mm. Uh, we don't want to do that again, do we? Uh, and look what happened. You ended up in hospital. It's it, it, He's in a, a, a position where having given up that particular piece of ground, he's constantly vulnerable to, to advice saying, don't shift, don't move. Mm. And it, it, I'm sure it makes a difference to any decision you take. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, something different. E-scooters you wrote about this week. I saw that you didn't think anyone else is seemingly interested. However, what I would say is that I've done quite a bit on e-scooters on this show. And and Nick Freeman, Mr. Loophole, you may know as a a lawyer who gets wealthy people off uh, speeding charges. He's also very keen to get um, some kind of regulation put into place, not least... Um, to register them properly and to be able to know precisely who is actually riding them. Well, I'm sorry that I, I missed your interventions and I apologise for No, that. no, no I'm, need. I'm glad that you did. What's fascinating about this is that quite a lot of people on, on social media yesterday were saying, oh, oh so that's, you know, the world's falling apart and the, the, you know, the, we're, we're under constant restrictions and there's about to be war with Russia and all this stuff. And Peter Hitchens is writing about <laughs> ease to As if. Uh, and, and, and they went on about the fact that the other half, well, not the other third of the page was given over to an attack on, on Britain's squalid attitude towards China. Yes. Uh, which I received almost no response at all. Uh, if, if people if people care about these things, and I, do, I think they are important. And uh, as, as I pointed out, I'm not here making an attempt to compare myself to George Orwell, but George Orwell, as a columnist, would write about anything for how to make a proper cup of tea to the, to the ideal pub, to, yes. the, to open fires versus central heating. What columnists should do, but actually, I think e-scooters are, are a major menace. And nice. I cited the terrible uh, business in Paris, where a, a, a superb musician had her wrist broken by one of these people. She'll never play properly again by no. her answers. Well, this you're probably more point. likely, Peter, to get in... damaged. Well, you're probably quite like more likely to get damaged by an e-scooter hitting you than you are by COVID-19. I would imagine. Well, they are, the, the thing is, they are, they are fast and they're silent. And I see them constantly on the pavement, usually coming towards me, sometimes zipping out aside from behind me. And I think that's close. Mm. And the thing is, you can have any amount of regulation you like, but the problem is that there is nobody on the streets of most of our major cities who's controlling the, the, the actual observance of the law. These things are actually, as far as I can discover, being written illegally all yeah. over the place, uh, in parks, on footpaths, on, on cycle paths, which I particularly, uh, 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 
it particularly infuriates me because mm. for years and years, you know, as a cyclist, I've, I've campaigned for and welcomed the introduction of cycle tracks where you ride without any motor vehicles. Yeah. And now suddenly you're riding along this zoom past you. Uh, comes one of these things with, at, at a speed faster than than I could generally ride, yeah. uh, with, a, with what looked to me like greatly inferior brakes and controls to cycles, and they're motor vehicles on cycle tracks. And they're also motor vehicles, uh, motor bikes actually, because they have motors and they mm. have two wheels, motor bikes on pavement. Yeah. And, and, and unless we have, it's another of my uh, central points, unless we return to having a preventive patrolling uh, police service, which patrols on foot, then none of this kind of thing will be controlled. However many regulations you make, it won't be it, it won't be controlled. It won't be stopped. You have to get the police back on the back on the streets. And you have to get them actually enforcing the law. Well, and that is, the, the, if that doesn't happen, then people will start being badly injured and killed by these things hmm. as they spread. And then they'll say, "Why did we do anything about it?" And I, I, for one, will be able to say, "Well, I told you so," but yeah. I would so much rather not have to say that. I say. It, 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 we've, we've avoided this horrible thing happening because people acted on my warning. Yes. Well, the problem, the problem seems to be that there are two forms of these scooters. The one, which is the sort of regulated one, if you like, where you can hire them, which have got speed limiters apparently on them. But you can also buy them, even though you're not supposed to be able to ride them by buying a private one. But you can obviously buy them because you can buy anything you want. And most of those are not regulated at all by a speeding restriction. So, I mean, I'm like you. I've seen people in London going whizzing past at what looks like about 40 miles an hour. And they're not even wearing a helmet. They're not, I mean, apart from the fact that they could hurt somebody else that they hit, they could probably kill themselves if they fell off. Well, they've certainly been being killed in Paris uh, on the roads mm. since they were, they were introduced there. But uh, the thing about these speed limiters is that it's apparently very easy. I don't want to emphasize any of the details, but it's apparently very easy to circumvent. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you rent them or buy them. It's not a, it's not a difficult thing to do. And it's... It, as anybody who's, who's, to, who's tried to do anything legally about speeding will tell you, it's very difficult to prove mm. that somebody is speeding unless they've been caught by a camera doing so. Uh, but I don't doubt that many of these things are way above the official limit. And it, 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 again, unless there's somebody on the street, a uniformed person with the power to, with, with, with the power of uh, the power of arrest and the, and the power to begin a prosecution, unless people like that are there to stop people, say, "Hey, what are you doing?" and take names and addresses, it doesn't matter. Uh, how registered they are, or how many speed limiters they are. It's the presence of, of, of law enforcement on the streets preventively and enforcing the smallest regulations leads, and this is the great James Q. Wilson of Broken Windows theory, which we proved in practice in New York City. Mm. If you enforce the small regulations, like people dodging fares on the underground or, 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 or riding writing things on the pavement when they shouldn't be, or breaking windows, then the big regulations take care of themselves because people understand there's somebody in charge. What happens in cities where there's nobody in charge is that all the laws eventually get broken. Yeah. Well, as they've seen in Minneapolis, where they defunded the police to the extent where they got rid of a load of them, and now they're having to rehire police because the, the residents are complaining that there's a lot of crime happening and nobody's actually there to stop it. I mean, it doesn't sound um, like the two things would, wouldn't be connected, does it? No, but it's, it's, it's a very simple point that we, the police went in the 1960s, and it was, a, I suppose, a pardonable mistake at the time because they didn't know what would happen. They went from being preventive to being reactive. They say they, instead of being there uh, preventing crime and disorder from happening, they, they went over to waiting for it to happen and then racing to the spot. Mm. And it's it's incredible how how different these two things are and the effect that they have. And you would have thought by now we would have learned that this was a mistake. 
extraordinary thing about modern Britain is the number of policy mistakes. I spend, I, I write books about them, quite thick books about the policy mistakes which have been made. They're obvious mistakes. Mm. The outcome has been worse. And the incredible difficulty of reversing an obvious mistake, getting people to say, no, no, that was wrong. We shouldn't have done that. Let's go back to what we did before. And just once I'd like to see it, just, just one. I, the only thing I've ever seen is a, a sort of recognition that the, the hideous tower block building frenzy of the 1960s was a mistake. Mm. And a lot of, but we seem to be returning to the tower block age now after, after an, era, an era when we, we sort of restrained ourselves. But that's the only sign I've seen of anybody recognizing that anything we did between 1950 and uh, and 2000 was a mistake, mm. and there are so many of them. Yes, it is quite remarkable, and you do draw the 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 the, 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 the comparison between the lack of police officers, that, but you also point to those who are the kind of the hard nuts that we see with the guns, you know, the the, the, the armed police who who sort of race around in very fast cars around London and probably are incredibly good at what they do, but instead of the regular police who you'd normally see walking around, they've all been replaced by these kind of yellow vest wearing. Covid marshals who seem to spend the most of their time um, policing protests. Well, there is that too, and of course, they, as the police become more separated from the public, they become more awkward with the public, and mm. they, the only people they meet who aren't in the police uh, tend to be criminals. So they they don't develop the relationship with normal human beings and police which we used to have, and so their their relations with people like demonstrators start from a much worse level than they would normally have done. I think that has a lot to do with what happens. People don't know the police. The police don't know people. And it's essential for a proper police force that the police are actually citizens in uniform. And we've lost that. Mm. And I'd really like to go back to it. And this is like the, the, the television portrayal of the police. And when I was growing up, it was Dixon and Doc Green. That yeah. was all there was. It, it, it basically, it was about for your nice, friendly police. Sure, it was an idealized thing. We all know it wasn't, it wasn't like that totally but it was closer to it than people like to yeah, acknowledge yeah but i mean i remember walking i mean when if, if you were walking around in north london where i lived as a, as a, when i grew up you would you would walk around a corner in a residential street and you'd walk past the police officer sometimes too yeah yeah and, and it, it, it was it was it was there you knew that the chances were pretty strong wherever you were a police officer yeah. walked by pretty soon and that that was just a, a fact of life and then they started uh, the, the, with, uh, I, did, I dealt with this in my book, The Abolition of Liberty, the, 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 the portrayal of the police as carborne and reactive in Z cars began a long process in which, and the police imitate television. When they see, when they see what's on television, either here or in America, they, they, they want to be more like it. Mm. I think police cars in this country, when, when there were police cars at all, yeah. they were dark blue. Uh, they were un, unshowy. Right. And now look at them covered in all kinds of coats of arms <laughs> and go faster strikes yeah. and, uh, and, 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 and patterns. Close, close encounters of the th third kind. Extraordinary things that they've become. And this is all the police copying television rather than television copying life. And they're part of the line of duty, all this stuff about people getting up and helmets and, and yeah. smacking people's doors down half the time. And sitting in front of computer screens, the rest. It's actually not a bad portrayal of what the police are now like, but it's not what we want them to no. be. No. Well, they seem to spend most of their time investigating one another, um, you know, which seems to me to be quite important, but perhaps not the main role for the police of this country. They should be actually policing the criminal, shouldn't they? Well, absolutely, they should. And alas, the, the independent police complaints body, um, which, whose name changes, it seems to me, about every five minutes, uh, seems to me to do a rather poor job. Mm. Uh, on actually keeping the police uh, in line on, on, on such things. So it, this is a, a portrayal of events which isn't, isn't really particularly 
faithful to reality. If if if, if uh, Ted Hastings really was in charge, is it Ted? Like, uh, yeah, if, if really really was in charge of, uh, of stamping out police corruption and, and malfeasance, we'd have a much better police force than the one we do. But I don't think that uh, there are many people like him around. No, sadly not. I mean, I think he's being sidelined as well on the grounds that he's the wrong sex. But that's something else. So let's finish well, up. Hope with... he returns in future episodes. <laughs> <is all right. laughs> well, let's finish up with a bit on China because uh, I was ex- expressing some dismay last week that I haven't been banned by the China Chinese government. I'm wondering what I can do uh, in order to get them to ban me because uh, that would be quite a badge of honour. Well, keep working at it. I mean, I, when I used to write about China, this is before the current leader Xi Jinping took over, who is much worse than his predecessor. Mm. Um, my newspaper was was, was pestered. Uh, they they came around demanding to know who I was and what I was oh, really? doing. In a nice country, writing uncomplimentary things about it. Mm. Uh, there was a definite feeling of resentment, and they throw their weight around uh, no end. But they, they, this is a key thing. And people say, why do you always call call the, China, the Chinese capital Peking? I said, that's what it's called mm. in English. And, and do you know what happened to, to British newspapers? Uh, particularly, I think, the Times, uh, that tried to continue to call it Peking. Uh, the, the Chinese foreign ministry threatened them with non-cooperation. Really? If they start referring now, of course, the Chinese call it something much more like Beijing and Peking, but then the, the, we call London, London, and no. the French call it Londres. Can you imagine what would happen? The Foreign Office called in correspondent of a French newspaper, Le Monde or Le Figaro, and said, we're not going to cooperate with you unless you start referring to, to London as London. Yeah. Stop going to laundry. It's a ridiculous rubbish. Yes. And yet we gave into this. And I, I'm, I think virtually the only national newspaper journalist who still refers to the Chinese capital as Peking. Uh, even though there is the, 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 there is still a Peking University in Peking, by yeah. the way. It's from the University of China. And nobody else does it. Right. Everybody has done this cow's house to China. And once you start doing that, the next thing that happens is they come as they did when when she and his predecessor came to London and tell us that we've got to keep demonstrators out of their sight, uh, that we've got to arrest them. The shocking behavior mm. of, of, of one Tibetan protester during the last visit, uh, basically driven off the street by three heavy, by three of the heavy mob, then locked up and, and having his house searched right. for holding up two A4 placards in favor of democracy. It's it absolutely astonishing the groveling to China, uh, which this country does, and our failures even to raise in a loud voice the, the behaviour of China in Hong Kong in in the past year is also a huge sign of weakness, and they take advantage of this. Mm. It's all very well saying, well, I would like to be sanctioned by the Chinese, but actually, the, the, the chances are not small that China will reach into our society before too long and make life difficult uh, for people who, who oppose and criticise it. And that an awful lot of people in this country will give in to that, as they have done. The Chinese mm. is a spot weakness in my life. And uh, it, it, it's, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not, I don't think this is over. I think China wants to control what we say. You go around university campuses and you'll often find that meetings uh, are held that is critical of China. Or mm. if, if, if the Falun Gong people or supporters of the Dalai Lama hold meetings. It, trouble then follows. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the Times actually did a fascinating in, uh, investigation into the number of Chinese links there are with uh, loads of universities, particularly yeah. um, uh, that, that is it the Russell Group, um, who have all got uh, absolutely billions of dollars and billions of, uh, of, of Chinese uh, money coming into them and, and, and paying for, for chairs at universities and even renaming those chairs. Indeed, they have. Yeah, and so, it, 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 the, the, the influence of China in this in this country, in terms of so-called soft power, is strong. Mm. 
and people should be aware of it. And these these futile sanctions against Ian Duncan Smith and so forth. Well, okay, but they, 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 he, he doesn't care, and rightly so. He wears it as a badge of honour. Mm. But deep down below the surface, more subtly, other things are going on, which are making criticism of China in this country and opposition by this country to Chinese actions uh, much weaker. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, the Times in Scotland has a page, a page lead, as we used to call it, a story this morning saying that Alex Salmon has called for a united front after having a very public spat and a falling out with Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland. She used to be his protégé. Uh, she's now his sworn enemy. Uh, Alex Salmon has held out an olive branch um, only days after starting a new party, which he says will uh, somehow strengthen the case for independence in Scotland. We'll try and get an explanation of everything that's going on. Let's talk to Kenny McCaskill uh, from the Albert Party. Kenny, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. That's a long time since we last spoke, mate. It's, it's good to be back. It certainly is. Very nice to see you. Now, first of all, let's begin at the beginning. When did you decide that you wanted to jump ship um, after the Albert Party was formed? I know that you've been, I suppose you might say, more on Alex Salmon's side than Nicola Sturgeon's side in, in recent weeks. What, what made you leave the SNP? Well, I've been in the SNP for over 40 years, as you'll probably be aware, Mike, mm. from previous discussions. But I've also had a lifelong commitment to Scottish independence. And I've been in discussions over recent weeks with Alex Salmond, and I believe that this is the way that we unlock Scottish democracy. Boris Johnson has said no to a second Scottish independence referendum. Scotland needs one more than ever because of the harm that's being done. We didn't vote for him. We don't want him. I'm 63 next month. Throughout my entire life, Scotland has never voted for a Tory government and now we get the worst we've ever had. That's why we've got to make this election the independence election and the Alba party can deliver an independence supermajority at the polls. Now, you could say this is the worst uh, Tory government that uh, you've ever had in Scotland, but there's quite a lot of money uh, helping you guys to run or your former uh, colleagues in the SNP to run um, the pandemic and the money that is given to Scotland for which to do so. Well, it's our taxes. We put it in. It comes from our assets, whether onshore or offshore. Uh, but Scotland's a rich country. 
tragedy is that it's not designed, the, the, divided fairly. Uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor in the middle are getting squeezed and worsened. So that's why we need change. And the opinion, you know, what we saw in 2016 was that on the list vote, one million people in Scotland voted SNP and they returned four list MSPs. An opinion poll on Saturday said that the SNP would return none. This way we can return ALBA party MSPs. We won't be beholden to the SNP, but we'll certainly change the dynamic of the independence debate because then it won't be an SNP government asking Boris Johnson to allow Scotland a second independence referendum. It'll be the Scottish Parliament with a majority of independent representatives demanding that Scottish democracy have its say. But one of the reasons why the list party system provides more smaller, shall we say, uh, parties to have access to, 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 to seats in the, in the Scottish Parliament, that's that's designed that way, isn't it? Because if, if the majority of people in the country vote SNP, they'll get more first-past-the-post members of Parliament. And so, therefore, it's a fair share for the others to get their say um, getting in on the list system, isn't it? Well, you're right. It was designed to try and ensure that no party would ever get a majority. Mm. That was actually defeated in 2011 when Alex Salmond got an overall majority. But the whole design was to ensure that there would never be an overall majority. And that was designed deliberately by Jack McConnell and others in the Labour Party who wanted to ensure there could never be an SNP or nationalist administration. As it is, there are many parties who now support independence. The Greens claim to support independence or smaller parties. The SNP is the main one. But independence is a particular issue and more than one party represents it because many people who support independence aren't in any party, either the ALBA party or the SNP. So having more than one party representing independence isn't anything unusual, but it's certainly for those who want to deliver independence and for who that is the issue. The way to do it is to vote SNP on the constituency and vote Alba on the list. But is it any surprise that some people are viewing this move by Alex Salmond as the ultimate act of uh, revenge, a dish best served cold? Because what he's actually doing is undermining the ability of Nicola Sturgeon to get herself a majority government and undermining the SNP as a party by nicking people like yourself away from them, even though Ian Blackford apparently thinks it's a good idea that you've gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I heard Ian had said that, but I'm not going to get involved in in name-calling. You know, I've got reasons for leaving the SNP, but I've still got many friends there, and I'll be voting SNP in the constituency, but it's up to each individual. What I do want to deliver is that independent supermajority, because Nicola Sturgeon didn't get a majority in 2016. It's unlikely she would get a majority in 2021. If you want to ensure an independence majority, uh, then you have to vote ALBA party on the list. So there are differences in some policies between ourselves and ALBA and the SNP, but we agree with the importance of independence. That's normal. There are people who are, you know, have views but uh, are in different parties in the UK or in England. It's the normal way. So we unite in independence and disagree on other aspects, in particular some uh, identity politics that have come about. Now, you've been part, Kenny, of a, of a, of a government in, in Scotland <clears throat> which has been in charge of Scotland, albeit uh, as part of the United Kingdom. Um, and the SNP's record on a great many things, uh, as has been pointed out by many people, is not great, is it? It's not great on education. It's not great on health. Uh, it's not great on drugs policy. Uh, it's really not... And it's not really fair to blame London for that, since you've got your own administration and your own civil servants and your own structure of government. 
Well, no government's perfect, and I would put my hands up at seven and a half years of mistakes I made, but I still think overall, and it's why the SNP leads in the polls and why people want independence. It's because they prefer the government that they've been having in Holyrood than what's been imposed from Westminster, where it's been austerity that has simply morphed. Uh, there are challenges in Scotland in particular because we don't have control of the fundamental financial levers. But I have to say, I prefer a country where we're opposing privatisation of our NHS, where we're prepared to try and make sure... That well, why do you need to propose that? Nobody's privatising it. You don't need to oppose well, the privatisation of the, the NHS. privatisation of the NHS is ongoing in England and Wales as we speak. Where? Uh, where is it? The undermining of GP practices. Where is it? Where is it? Come on, Kenny. Come on, Kenny. Chain. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Where is it ongoing in the privatisation of the NHS? Where? I mean, it started and has been continued under new labour. We've seen the whole creation of trusts that have collapsed. Most people in Scotland, bless their cotton socks, that they're within the NHS system in Scotland rather than south of the border. And whatever pledges we hear from Boris Johnson, the price of a trade deal with Biden's America will be to see the undermining of the NHS. This claim that the NHS is safe in Tory hands, I just don't buy it. Do you buy the fact that the SNP can afford to give a 4% a four pay rise to NHS workers in Scotland? And if so, where did they get the money from? Well, I think that's a good thing, and I think many more workers should be getting a 4% pay rise. I certainly think it's much better than the kleptocracy I'm seeing from Boris Johnson's, where £37 billion has been given to friends, companies, cousins, public managers that they know or whatever else, where public assets, that could have gone to funding the frontline workers who have bravely served, as opposed to using the pandemic. Yeah, but where did, the, where did the, SN, where did the, the SNP get the money for that, Kenny? Well, it comes from our taxes. We contribute our taxes into Westminster when we're given back our pocket money. If we were given back all our money, then we could proceed. In terms of dealing with the pandemic, then obviously the money's been printed by the Bank of England as it's printed by every central bank in any country. You know, what was actually said could not be done when criticism was made of Jeremy Corbyn has been done by Rishi Sunak as you're not campaigning against anybody in England. You're campaigning now against people in Scotland, Kenny. And so what's Absolutely. your view? What is Alba's view, for example, of what the pound would be in the new Scotland? If Scotland was independent, what would your currency be? Well, we would be seeking at a very early juncture to establish a separate Scottish currency, the same as other countries have their own currency. Initially, you have to transfer into sterling. It's our pound as much as it's your pound, Mike. It's the same pound north and but it south. Wouldn't be your, but it wouldn't be early. your pound after independence, though, would it? It'd be ours. We are, we are entitled to use it. Not unless we say you can, Kenny. Uh, well, well, you just you said you've just said the, you just said the Bank of England prints the money. Bank of England. The Bank of England prints the money, and uh, you know we don't control the Bank of England, but we're certainly able to use the pound. Uh, that was made clear by Mark Carney. Mark so you Carney wouldn't be looking. I uh, so said it before when he was governor. And it, yeah, but he's not anymore, is he? What about uh, the euro? You don't fancy that? No, our preferences for our own currency, the same as many other countries in Europe have not chosen to go into Europe for their own currency. Well, not many of them. But what about the uh, the well, Norway prefers it. What about the Norway? Come on, is that it? Are you still going to bang that drum? Norway, this is the kind of small country well, I, that you want to be. I, I grew up in a Scotland that discovered North Sea oil at the train, same time as Norway discovered North Sea oil. Scotland has seen food banks escalate and morph that didn't exist when North Sea oil was discovered. Norway has become super rich. Its people have money coming out their ears. Do they? I think most in Scotland would say, if only we had had been able to follow the direction of Norway. Yeah, the SNP's been in charge of the Scottish purse strings for many years, and yet 
you have more food banks than we have in England. How is that? That's because the purse strings are actually fundamentally controlled by England and it comes from the Westminster Treasury. Well, I thought, we control I thought it was your 100% taxes. of our tax revenues and we only get some 60% back. Mm. If we controlled all our money, then we could decide on our own direction. Scotland's a rich country. The tragedy is it's not shared equally. And the tragedy is we're not doing as well as we should because mm. you are right. There are issues in Scotland. I'm not going to pretend that the health service, the education service, their economy is up full motor. It most certainly isn't. But the reason it isn't, isn't because of what's happening at Holyrood. It's because of the constraints that are imposed by Westminster. And if people don't like the SNP, you can get a different government in Scotland. But any government will be challenged unless they can act as an independent government should be able to act. Have you left the SNP, Kenny, because they've become um, undemocratic as an organisation? They've become a sort of cult of personality under Nicola Sturgeon? Well, I've served with Nicola Sturgeon as I served with Alex Diamond. I, I have disagreements on issues within the SNP, but the reason I've left is to deliver an independent supermajority. So my fire is going to be focused on the union, on delivering that independence majority. I've walked away from the SNP after 40 years. It's not something I've done easy, uh, but I retain friends there, so I'm not going to fight with them. I'm going to campaign for independence and that independent supermajority. But this is going to be a pretty bloody fight, isn't it? I mean, you know as well as I do, Kenny, that the SNP are going to be coming after Alba. There's absolutely no chance of uh, Nicola Sturgeon making up with Alex Salmond. He says that they should forget their differences. I mean, it was only a couple of weeks ago uh, he was accusing her of misleading the Scottish Parliament and of conspiring against him. I don't see how you ever really make that up. Well, actually, I think in politics that's happened throughout the years. You just need to look at the British cabinet of numerous parties throughout our life, Mike, and you'll see people who were at daggers drawn who then served. Even within Boris Johnson's cabinet, we, we see that. So I think Alex Salmon's quite right. You know, I'm not going to come onto your radio programme and suggest that Alec and Nicola are bosom friends. Of course they're not. But they prepared to, to accept that the bigger issue is how do we deliver that independent supermajority. We've taken a different path. We disagree with the SNP on many policy issues, but not on the core ones. But we'll unite with them for that common cause. And other than that, you know, we're going to train our fire on the union. Is there any truth to the story that Angus Robertson's being uh, sort of groomed to be the next leader of the SNP? That's something you need to speak to the, to the SNP about. You know, I've, I've again campaigned with Angus. Uh, I, you know, he and I are now in different parties, and I, I, I'm not going to to, to to belittle him. That'll be a matter for the SNP to decide. It isn't a matter for Alba. Now, what about Alba's other policies? Do you have any policies that you can tell me about, Kenny, right now that that we don't know about? We know that you want independence. What else makes you different from the SNP? Well, I mean, we are we are uh, waiting for a major party conference on Saturday. We don't want to use up members who come in because it's not for me to dictate policy, but we've set a direction of travel. That is that we'll seek to join EFTA, the EEA, where Norway, Switzerland, Iceland are all located. Members of the single market and the customs union, but not actually in the EU, because that'd be a matter for the people of Scotland to decide. We want to get the benefits of trade with them without being dictated to them politically. We're committed to non-nuclear. That's something core that was within the SNP and remains with us. We need to address, and I accept the points you've made about education. Scottish education does need revived, Mike. I mean, I think we all bought into this curriculum for excellence. I think there was a lot of merit and brains in it. Scottish education isn't in total meltdown, but it does need support. It does need to improve. And we'll be you know, looking at that because we're getting a major policy paper in from one of Scotland's foremost educational academics. We're also committed 
for example, to the preservation of the NHS. You know, we've argued that just uh, recently, but, you know, we are opposed to any privatisation and the challenges of that. And it's a dynamic economy. So it's, the, I think, the radical social democratic position that the SNP used to adopt uh, and indeed on women's rights. We're taking a distinctive position to protect women's rights while still recognising the rights of all uh, within wider society. Well, that'll be very interesting to see that particular debate. What's your policy on the lockdown and the lifting of it? Well, we have to call canning. Uh, we've got to prepare to come out because, you know, businesses are going bust, as you know, you'll be getting on your channel. So I think, you know, we welcome the progress that has been made. We do have to come out of it, but it's got to come out of it at a time because the, you know, the variants, I'm privy to the briefings that come not just from the Scottish government, that come obviously from the Westminster government as, a, as, a, as an MP. We are and do have to be worried about variants that come in. I've had my AZ jab. Uh, we don't want to be getting in a variant that uh, wouldn't, uh, would, would undermine, you know, the protections that are given. But we do have to get out of it and fast because the economy is challenged. We've got to do it progressively. Uh, and therefore, as I say, it's about uh, moving forward uh, with some coherence. And Nicola Sturgeon said the other day that uh, she had concerns and other people might have concerns about Alex Salmon re-entering uh, public life. Does she write about that? Well, I'm a former Justice Secretary, Mike, as you know, and I think you, you, we, we spoke at that time when I was there. I've always known, because I was a lawyer, defence lawyer, for 20 years before that, you accept the findings of a jury. Alex Sam has been before, been before two courts, civil and criminal, and he's been successful in both. A jury of 15, majority women in Scotland, acquitted him on all charges. That's the end of the story. People have been joining in the droves from the SNP. The equalities officer has come over. The women's officer has come over. I think that testifies to the fact that whatever smears have been flung at Alex Salmond, there's certainly high-profile women in Scotland happy to stand by and campaign with him. OK, final question, Kenny. Should Nicola Sturgeon have resigned when she was found to have misled Parliament? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a matter for her. Obviously, was within Parliament. I'm a Westminster MP, and it was a matter for the Scottish Parliament. She was cleared by Mr Hamilton, uh, uh, but the Parliamentary Committee obviously came to other conclusions. That's a matter for her, and it's a matter for Holyrood. OK. Kenny McCaskill, thank you very much indeed. Kenny McCaskill, MP uh, for the Alba Party uh, in Westminster. He is also a candidate in the Lothian Regional List. And for those other parties, uh, you can find out exactly where they are. Uh, the Conservatives, the Labour Party, Liberal Democrats, Reform UK, Scottish Greens and SNP will all also be fielding candidates. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, coming up, we're going to talk to Dr David Bull, Deputy Leader of the Reform UK Party, on cladding. They've got some ideas to uh, sort that particular mess out. Right now, though, let's talk to Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, travel consultancy firm, to get an update on, uh, on where we are, really. Paul, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. I'm hearing sort of various different stories over the course of the last few days, possible corridors opening up to America, uh, flights being possible sometime in the summer to the US. Um, still not entirely certain what's going on in Europe. What's, uh, what's the latest? I'm actually very optimistic about travel uh, of some shape and form starting from May the 17th. Okay. And I think you'll find that government ministers start to become more optimistic themselves in the coming days. The data is showing, and of course, they rely on the data. The data is showing that things will be much better from May, June onwards. And there are already a number of countries which have very low infection rates, no variants, are ramping up their vaccine programmes. 
And when you combine all of those measures, they will be the ones the government looks to to indicate um, whether you can go on a business or, or leisure trip from May the 17th onwards. Right, because at the moment they're kind of being guided or they're telling us they're being guided by the high rate of infection in Europe, which makes it kind of difficult um, to open up any kind of travel really there. But mm. are they basing that then on the fact that they get on top of that? Yes. And in fact, if you look at this time last year, we were in a similar position where you had many European countries uh, in a terrible, sad situation as well. But of course, as the summer grew closer, their infection rates come down. This year, you've got the added bonus of the vaccine, albeit a slower rollout in Europe, but it will ramp up by the end of April. And then if you add on six to eight weeks after that, you're looking at June being a very different scenario as it was last year in Europe. Right, And in fact, Europe will be in a better situation than last year. So I'm confident that by the end of June, there will be many European places, in fact, where British travellers will be able to visit. So if you're looking at uh, sort of, you know, as a family, possibly booking something, I mean, we, we, we're kind of being told at the moment by ministers not to do that, not mm. to go ahead and do that. But obviously there are people who will say, yeah, but, you know, look how cheap it is at the moment. If I book it now, I can actually get somewhere uh, uh, and hopefully get it uh, covered so that we'll get at the very least um, a, a voucher, if not a refund. Um, mm. I mean, a lot of families are just kind of not sure what to do, really. No, and it's the question I'm asked every minute of every hour of every day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I could be a millionaire if I charged for this. Yes. But essentially, uh, no, ch- no chance of doing that, I might add. But um, basically, first of all, there are, there are countries which are um, able to be opened up from May the 17th. Mm. So you're looking at the likes of Gibraltar, um, probably islands like Malta, mm. uh, the USA, parts of the Caribbean, all of these have very low rates or very high vaccination programs. And when you combine them, it means that they will be in a position after May to, to welcome visitors safely. Mm. Um, but equally, I think you're going to see a big reduction in rates across Europe by the summer. And I would be booking a trip for certainly mid-July onwards to be on the safe side. I think actually most European countries will open up before mid-July. Mm. But if you want to be really safe, I would be looking at mid-July onwards for Greece, France, Italy, Spain, the usual, um, uh, usual popular suspects. Locations. And would these be yeah. and would these be places you could go and come back from without having to quarantine? I mean, I'm not asking you to to, to, to look into the crystal ball and predict government policy because that is a very dangerous game indeed. But but I mean, I mean, a lot of people, and I would be one of them. So it's a selfish question. Um, would find it difficult to go anywhere if you have to quarantine on your return. Well, I have been trying to predict the government and and, uh, crystal ball since last summer with my traffic light system, which the government, (laughs) I'm pleased to say, is likely to to unveil a form of um, hopefully next week, ready for May, Mm. which will be great news for consumers to to follow a red, amber, green system. So I think you'll find that there are different restrictions based on each category. Mm. Hopefully with green, it will be a case of you don't have to test at all if you've been vaccinated and you come back into the UK. Uh, if you haven't been vaccinated, I think I think you'll be able to rely on a simple lateral flow test. And the costs of those are coming down to about £30 mm. now, so much cheaper yeah. for a family of four. If you come back from an amber country, then I think you'll have to test and possibly self-isolate for a few days to be on the safe side. Mm. And if you come back from a red high-risk country, 
um, then you would probably still have to hotel quarantine. Yeah. It's something the industry has been fighting against, but I think the government won't budge on hotel quarantine at the moment. They're still nervous about variants right. coming in and therefore they don't want to take the risk. And I assume at this point the travel business as such would like to see something rather than nothing. So they'll kind of go mm. along with, with, with maybe more restrictions rather than fewer uh, just because yes. they want to do something. Yes, that's right. And, um, you know, the government, to be fair to them, are, are definitely um, keen on some restrictions of some kind still as they monitor. They're being ultra cautious. Mm. But equally, they've got to get the travel um, economy, if you like, moving again, especially from a business point of view. There are, there are people who are seeing restrictions removed in this country, especially from June the 21st, when there are due to be no restrictions. Right. Therefore, why wouldn't you be able to travel if you've been vaccinated to another country on business? Mm. Um, so I think we're starting starting to see an unravelling which will be too difficult to stop in the coming weeks and especially after May will be in a very different position to the mess in Europe that mm. we're seeing at the moment. And do you think the government will be in a position to start making those kinds of announcements closer to the time? Because that's the other thing that, that people worry about, I suppose, is that, you know, if they suddenly announce, you know, two weeks on Friday, um, what you've just explained... There'll be a mad rush for all sorts of things to be booked, and you know it'll be kind of it'll be sort of like, be like free for all, won't it? Yeah, well, I think whatever they say, uh, probably next week when the travel task force is due to respond and report back to the prime minister, there will probably be more confidence, which will lead to more bookings. People mm. are uh, freezing their bookings at the moment; they're not sure. The industry itself is in the deep freeze, in effect, waiting yeah. for people to book. Yeah. Um, but I think they're they're going to be more optimistic. You're right. I don't think they're going to say you'll be able to go to France on this date. Right. What they will say is, here's our our traffic light system and the categories. Uh, and how, how the restrictions will behave when you come back. Um, when a country gets into that level, then you'll know it's safe to go to. I think they'll go down to that level mm. of detail. Right. So that will be encouraging for the sector. But definitely, um, whilst it's going to be an amazing staycation summer, of course, which is good news for those in this country, I'm confident it's going to be a much better summer than many were predicting yeah. for overseas travellers. Well, well, let's hope so, because that's what I've been sort of hoping for as well. And as far as the, the, the vaccination scenario is, because now people under 50 have been put on hold, if you like, you know, I know people who are saying to me, well, if I don't get a jab until, say, May or maybe June in my 40s, then I'm not going to get a second one probably until September. So that bang goes mm. the summer. Well, no, because I think you can still be tested. And that's the thing. The government's got to outline a scenario where you can travel to certainly low risk countries mm. without a vaccine as long as you test properly when you come back. Yeah. So it's going to be a summer of sand sea and swab basically <laughs> uh you will have to Can test I remember when the three way. s's meant something else yes right. well the t sign of the times you know things have moved on <laughs> but i think you're you're going to have to accept these days that you will have to be tested in some form when you come back to the right. uk and i think for many people they'll accept that as long as the pricing is low and you know 30 pounds it's you know probably doable on top of your holiday price yeah. Um, especially if it means you can come back safely. Sure. Paul, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency Travel Consultancy Firm, with some pretty firm information and pretty good information on what the government, he thinks, is likely to be doing in the next couple of weeks. So we shall keep an eye on that. Uh, and it may be that there's a glimmer of hope for you to go away somewhere sunny and warm and nice and different from Britain. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.